You're listening to You Might Have a Point, a podcast about politics and related topics such as philosophy, psychology, public policy, journalism, and culture. The basic idea of the show is that, even when you disagree with someone on some things, it can often be worth it to find common ground by saying, you know, you might have a point. If you want to learn more about the podcast or the blog that accompanies it, you can visit youmighthaveapoint.com. I have two notes before I get to today's interview. The first is that it was recorded on January 5th, which is why we don't mention the events that took place the next day. The second note is that I sometimes didn't do as good a job of framing the questions as I could have, even though Mickey and Yoel did a good job of answering them anyway. One time I did this is when I brought up the social construct theory of emotion and the relationship between social constructs, our emotions, and news events and politics. The example I used was regarding race and police brutality, but ironically, a better example of what I was trying to get at happened the day after we recorded this on January 6th, when a violent mob stormed the Capitol and attempted to interfere with the process by which we certify the results of the American presidential election. A strictly literal description of the events of that day would be bad enough. Five people, including one police officer, died. But much of our reality is socially constructed, and one example of that is that we decide to imbue things like the Capitol building with a certain amount of gravitas. It's not just any building, it's what it symbolizes. Namely, the embodiment of the will of the people and their duly elected representatives. That's important. That is why that day was so awful and will, I think, forever be a dark spot in American history. And having said all of that, I give you today's interview. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today the host of the Two Psychologists Four Beers podcast, where two psychologists endeavor to drink four beers while discussing news and controversies in science, academia, and beyond. Uh, first host I'm glad to welcome is Yoalan Barr. He is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He studies how intuitions and emotions, particularly discussed, affect our social, political, and moral beliefs. In his spare time, he studies how beer, whiskey, and wine affect his ability to make coherent arguments. Yoel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And the second host I'm glad to welcome is Michael Inslicht. He is a social psychologist and neuroscientist at the University of Toronto. His interests include self-control, religion, and wasting time on social media. He occasionally quotes from The Big Lebowski. Welcome, uh, Mickey Inslicht. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having having me on. Uh, I want to just say one thing right away, and that is, sure. I, I noticed your description of our show was well, the words were in there were endeavor to drink four beers, which I think you well you just recently edited that, didn't you? That was you yeah, that was that was a that. stealth edit. Ah, stealth edit. All right, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. have to check web archive to see what it originally was. <laughs> I think originally we promised that we would drink four beers, and then I thought that that was over promising. So I, that's why I changed it. I, I love, I like the word endeavor there. That that's exactly. You know, we do our best. We don't always get there. Well, Mickey, you always get there. You know, you're you're reliable. I am not. Yes, at least in that dimension. I, I I'm I I less reliably record my voice correctly. You know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses as, as podcasters, and uh, I think it's our diversity that makes us strong. You know, that's right. It's our I, diversity I would agree that with leads that. the truth, right? <laughs> All right, so um, I'm just going to ask you guys both this question, and you can kind of pick and or bounce back and forth between uh, who answers. But I guess uh, if you want, you could just, just sort of describe your own podcast, uh, why you started it, and uh, what it's about. Right, so our podcast is Two Psychologists, Four Beers. Uh, we're, we've been doing it, what, for nearly three years, two and a half years? 
And uh, it's been a strange adventure. It's been, um, so our podcast is about, essentially about psychology, uh, you know, prominent themes in the podcast include open science, replication crisis, um, maybe a heterodox psychologists, uh, kind of a politics a little bit. Uh, and then just kind of more bread and butter, just having guests on and talking about, you know, uh, the an issue du jour. Um, yeah, it's been kind of a wild ride. It's kind of been lots of interesting guests and then lots of interesting, interesting conversations between UL and I about all different kinds of things. And it's kind of um, kind of strange, uh, I think. To, it's hard to tell exactly, but I suspect uh, I'm more recognized now for the podcast than for anything else. And, and maybe UL, uh, I'm not sure how you feel about that, but yeah. No, I think that's totally right. It's um, sobering, uh, but also kind of great that these podcast episodes, I'm sure, have a greater reach than any academic work I've I've ever done. Um, and it really is something that we just sort of started on a lark. So there there was the Black Goat, a psychology podcast that, that existed before us. Um, and there was Very Bad Wizards, of course, which I had been on a few times. And, and it was really those shows that made us think that it would be possible for us to do this or that like people might want to listen. Um, and we had been just, you know, hanging out, drinking, having conversations. And we were like, this could be fun to do basically with mics in front of us. That was, mm -hmm. that was the initial concept. Um, and then it, you know, it, it really um, took off uh, in part because, uh, you know, we, we have this like fake feud with very bad wizards, but they were really, kind in in promoting us to start with and I, I think so we we got some people coming over from there we got some other just like psych researchers people who are sort of behavioral science adjacent who are interested in some of those topics um and then it sort of evolved from there uh so yeah it's it's been great i mean i don't totally honestly like on a given night i don't always feel like drinking and so that's maybe the biggest hurdle for me it's like oh man i'm gonna fucking wake over wake up with a hangover again you know but i but i make the sacrifice generally that's very generous um, of you <laughs> yeah that's right um and uh and yeah i mean it's been it's been great and honestly like the response has been so much more than we ever expected it would be cool so yeah um you mentioned how you're podcast is kind of politics adjacent um this one is centered on politics but i view politics as kind of broadly related to a lot of topics um i guess i'm wondering if you feel comfortable how would you guys describe yourselves ideologically uh i'll go first um so i'm from the u.s i'm not canadian uh so i would describe myself as a liberal democrat um i've I, you know i my primary votes were for Bernie Sanders both times that he ran that should give you some idea. Yeah. Um, at the same time, and maybe we'll get into this. I think there is a bit of a generational thing where older people, regardless of their kind of like ideological placement have often like at least the kind of people that, that we bump up against uh, a respect for the, like the small L liberal norms mm -hmm. of uh, respecting disagreement, doing your best to see, um, the viewpoint of the person on the other side, believing that uh, it's best if we uh, allow people to advocate for ideas, if only to show that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that maybe generationally is now on the left, um, less of a popular view. And so if I feel any sort of misfit with like mainstream left discourse, it's along that dimension. Yeah, I would, uh, I mean, I certainly echo what you all said in the last bit about there being a generational gap 
which really I've only learned through via the podcast and then interacting with people via mm. the podcast, realizing where there were points of friction that I was surprised by. It seemed um, like a mainstream, you know, opinion that we should, uh, other than some extreme, you know, truly hate, hate, hateful people, uh, right. you know, hate speech. I realize it's, it's hard to define what that is, but um, other than that, we more or less allow people to speak and then let them sink or swim with their words. And we don't, uh, you know, deplatform or cancel or what have you. Um, but, uh, you know, getting back to your, your question about where I identify, uh, it seems I, I, my my immediate gut response is to, to say center left, um, but I know now people who put that center first are kind of uh, <laughs> seem to be denigrated. Uh, right. Centrists are supposedly actually are seen as actual you know conservatives Sell hiding. Outs. Yeah, yeah, but oh, no, okay. I mean I, I've I, so in Can I'm Canadian and um, I uh, we have uh, we're, we're a multi party system here, and so uh, we. I identify most strongly with uh, our, the, our what we call the Liberal Party, which is really our center-left party. There's another party that's even left of the Liberals called the uh, New Democratic Party, the NDP. I occasionally vote for them, um, but yeah, I would say I'm, you know really an old-school liberal, and uh, you know believe in, in, in I think the the main tenets, uh, the, the main policy points on the left, I totally agree with. I, you know, in terms of, you know, I, I, I'm happy to pay my taxes. I'm happy, you know, I, 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 I'm happy to have a modest sized government. I don't need to, mm -hmm. the government to be super small and, and the government to be, you know, to, to stay out of uh, people's pocketbooks. I'm, I'm happy for the services that government provides for us. I also believe that, um, uh, in, in egalitarianism and 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 all the, all the, all that that entails, uh, I sometimes react when uh, that the value of diversity uh, or egalitarianism is is placed as the number one value above everything else. Um, I certainly think it's an important one, but it's not something that I think is. I, I mean, and and maybe it's more important than many things, but is it the number one thing all the time? I'm 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 less certain. So yeah, where I where I feel most friction is is kind of the, this generational friction. Okay. Yeah. So, getting back to something you all mentioned about just uh, the the reach of the podcast, um, I think one thing that it's been good, at least as far as I can tell, is promoting sort of a healthy view of the practice of science, uh, because I think sometimes uh, there's uh, two extremes. Uh, everything becomes an extreme in the in the popular media discourse but it's either science is this perfect thing that you must accept and whatever the scientists say is accurate or it's all bunk and it's all you know left-wing professors and their nonsense right um and so i think one thing that uh it's been good just to hear from is actual psychologists doing the work not journalists talking about the difficulties and the complexities of doing science uh the strength with which you can make certain conclusions and things like that um, would you say that's one benefit of the podcast? Uh, I mean, yes. Uh, well, self-servingly, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for people to, you know, and our audience is like, there's a, there's a lot of researchers and academics okay. in our audience. Um, but there's also people who aren't, who are just interested. And I think one of the great things about podcasts is it just makes it possible for those people who are interested to hear from people who are like, you know, working researchers. What is it like? Um, how do we think about the world? What are the kind of controversies that are happening? Um, I will say you sort of touched on this, the way that um, kind of trust in science, at least, 
um, at an elite level. And I say that because I think that like public opinion surveys show that trust in science is high kind of across the board mm -hmm. um, in, in the US at least. Um, but at an elite level, there's kind of a left wing, just trust the science. And there's, I don't know if there's anybody on the right who's like, I mean, I suppose there's like right media spaces that are like, oh, it's all just indoctrination, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that this point has been made really well by uh, recently by Matthew Iglesias, who is like a newsletter. Um, Ross Douthat wrote about it in the Times recently. There's a lot of questions where people are just saying reflexively trust the science, right. where the question, it's not fundamentally scientific, right? So if we're like, who should get vaccines first, right? How do we prioritize that? Some of that is scientific in that we can say, if we care about vaccinating the highest risk groups, well, who's highest risk? Highest risk? That is an empirical question, right? Mm -hmm. There the science becomes relevant. But a lot of the questions are actually moral and political, right? So like, sure. how do you weigh the interests of different groups, right? Who's more deserving? Um, do we care about protecting people who are exposed because they have no choice? So those would be like, say, retail workers who have to go out um, and do their jobs or, or else be unemployed? Or do we care about protecting the people who are at highest risk of death if they get the virus and that will be the elderly, right? And that's not, resolving that isn't a scientific question. That's a moral and political question. And just saying reflexively, well, trust the science, it doesn't answer the question. And I think that, you know, people on the left, some people I should say, because precisely because science is so trusted, kind of use that as a political bludgeon. And using it that way, I think actually undermines the trust that is still broadly there in science. It's like a very dangerous tactic because it mm -hmm. practically guarantees that now people on the right are gonna say like, oh, the science stuff is all BS, which just to reemphasize isn't currently the point, right? So if you right. look at like polling data, Gallup, Pew and so on, these are representative samples, people on the left and the right say they trust science and scientists. And I mean, like right now we're at a time where science is really delivered, right? We have in a year these vaccines. That's a miracle, right? And so it makes sense that people will be like, yeah, science is great. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I guess I, I worry about like when you use these, the, the kind of goodwill that's been built up towards this institution of science as a political weapon, well, then you automatically start undermining it. Um, yeah, I want to I go a slightly different direction with your question um, in the sense that for me, I've always, I'm not sure always, but, but certainly the past, you know, decade or, or more, really, really value error. Um, by that, I mean, I value people who admit to making errors. I value people, I, I value a, a process that helps identify errors and then corrects for those errors. And I think... Um, despite there being lots of hand-wringing about how slow science can be, uh, at least in self-correction, you all just give a great example of where science can be super fast, mm -hmm. but in terms of self-correction, it can be slow. I think, you know, a, a, as far as a system of knowledge goes, like a way of knowing science is, might suck, but it's better than any other way we have. But that means we're going to have lots of false starts. It means we're going to make lots of mistakes. So it's critical that we identify those mistakes, uh, highlight them, even celebrate them, so then we can move on um, and, and, and get past them. And I think uh, given the, the tumult of the past 10 years in psychology and especially in social psychology, where we've realized we've made errors on massive scales, um, you know, it's highlighted the, the, the importance of, of, of acknowledging the errors and, and correcting them. And I think our podcast helps highlight some of the errors um, that we've made ourselves personally, but also that the field has made. And my hope is that by 
casting a spotlight on errors, um, we're seen for what we are. We are a, a trustworthy endeavor. We're not so beholden to an idea that we once had. We're willing to change our mind. Changing our minds is a virtue. I know in politics, it's not, you know, if you change your mind too much, maybe you'll be, be labeled a flip-flopper, right? Um, no, I think it's important to follow the data where it is, including, you know, rejecting your own past work, rejecting the work of your field. Um, and if our, if our podcast helps people see that this too is science, this is a critical part of science, then I'd be, I'd be really pleased that we're, I think we're really doing some, some uh, valuable surface there. Cool. So, um, you mentioned getting some feedback from different kinds of listeners. Uh, how would you say you've been received by your general audience? And then how, uh, if I may ask, how has it affected um, how you're perceived um, by uh, coworkers or other uh, members at your university, if it has at all? Uh, I guess I could start. I mean, it's really, it's kind of hard to say, I think, because... Um, it's, I think it's hard to know how we're perceived. Uh, I think we have we have a, a picture in our head of how we are perceived uh, that might be filtered through our own biases. Um, you know, that being said, uh, I, I, you know- That's you, a good well, point. I, I, wonder, I shouldn't I wonder, have wonder, asked psychologists how they're perceived. <laughs> like, that's very- <laughs> <laughs> Right. I, I'm curious to hear what you, what you think, but I imagine we're perceived as being, you know, uh, more- more to the to the right than the typical, um, let's say, academic. Uh, maybe we're even painted as even conservatives, which, which I think would be really inaccurate, as you you know, uh, as we answered to your, one of your earlier questions. Uh, but I don't know if that's actually true. Maybe that, again, that's just kind of the way what I think is being highlighted. But I, I'm not sure. What do you think, Yoel? Yeah, you know, I don't know that. I this politics stuff is salient even to many of our listeners to just like regular academics who aren't like super online, super in tune with the culture war stuff. Um, I, I think to most people, we just seem kind of like regular, like, yeah, no, it seems reasonable. Um, yeah. they, when, when we've gotten pushback, it's been because we've criticized people's research and there, then we'll, we'll definitely hear from people who are like, well, I, I feel like that was off base. You didn't give us enough credit for this, you know, and, and not, I don't, I don't say that dismissively, right? Like it's just, right. yeah, when, you, when your research is criticized, then <laughs> that's when you're really motivated to write those emails. We, we don't get like emails flaming us about our like political statements or anything like that. I don't think ever. Mickey, can you remember one? No, not emails, but we get pushed back on Twitter about, uh, so for example, in our, one of our more recent episodes, it might've been even our last episode where we were talking about, I'm not gonna get into it, but we talking about some controversy about a paper that got retracted. Um, and we got people kind of uh, pushing back in the sense of, oh, well, you said this, thanks, cool, but I think you're wrong for you know, reasons X, Y, Z. Um, so is that pushback or is that just engagement? I'm not sure. But sure. I, I, I do find that when we take a, you know, a slightly heterodox view on an issue, uh, we'll hear from it, from our audience. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, right, in, in that our audience is big enough that if we take some position, there's going to be some of them that disagree with it. And I think we've gotten that honestly from, from both sides of a mm -hmm. lot of issues. Um, so that's, that's what I would expect given that our audience is pretty diverse. Cool. All right. So now I'm going to move into, I guess the second segment of the podcast where just kind of talk about some philosophical issues um, and deeper issues in uh, politics, science, and psychology. 
So um, I was introduced to the work of uh, Thomas Nagel by the Very Bad Wizards podcast. And he, uh, I think, has a, a skill at um, boiling down a complex idea into really simple words. And so he has described science as the view from nowhere and the sense that it isn't relying on perceivers to describe objective reality, sort of um, a description of the world um, without any per particular viewpoint, which is uh, really counterintuitive to the way humans think and interact with the world. I'll just start off with like, is, is that roughly how you conceive of um, what science is and uh, what you're trying to do with it? That's a hard question. Um... I'd be from nowhere. I mean, I, I think I get what he's saying. And I think maybe when I was younger uh, and I had a maybe, I don't want to call Thomas Nagel naive, I, I believe, uh -huh. not, but I, I feel that's to some extent a naive view because of course, science is conducted by humans mm -hmm. who do have perspectives and do have their own experiences and they bring those experiences into what they study. Um, so that's why- uh, Maybe it's an example, ideal view. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's a platonic ideal, yeah. sure. It's a view yeah. from nowhere. You know, it, it should be describing reality as it is. But um, I, I, you know, I, I do think so much reality is in the eyes of the beholder. So it, it's very tough. But that's why uh, I think many activists, but also uh, heterodox, you know, academics, you know, argue for diversity. They they talk about the need for different kinds of diversity. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea there is that if you get a diverse number of views, a, a, diver a diverse number of experiences, you will somehow triangulate on the truth. You'll each make errors, you'll each have biases, but your biases won't necessarily be overlapping. And there you can get at some quote unquote objective view. I think that would be the ideal way uh, of this coming about. But I think that's in practice, I'm not sure how often that happens. Yeah, I I appreciate the the appeal of the view from nowhere kind of aspiration. I think for social science where just if you think about like, what are the questions that people find interesting or uninteresting, it has to be influenced by their social context, right? Like um, psychologists spend a lot of time studying prejudice and discrimination. And are, I think that's good. And I think the reason for that is that those are social problems that we think are important. So I don't know how you, you know, pretend that you are an alien who knows nothing about human society right. and make your decisions of research programs that way. Right. Like, I don't know if it would be desirable to maybe, do that. Well, maybe anthropologically, um, uh, that, that reminds me of the view that anthropologists try to take at least, I don't know how possible it is. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just that like a, a lot of social psych is in a way more applied, right. Where like, mm -hmm. here's this social problem. We want to understand it. Right. And then you've already abandoned the view from nowhere, I think in this important respect of at least in topic selection, we are going to say uh, we're going to study what's socially important right now. Um, and, and, you know, we may do that by trying to understand these like basic processes that we think apply universally and so on. Um, but often social psych research is trying to then build a bridge to the specific issue that we as a society think is consequential and worth worrying about. Okay. I think you can distinguish that from like, should you try to be um, unbiased in your work or should you be pursuing an activist agenda, right? So I think you can say, yeah, our, our 
selection of topics, um, what we decide to study, well, that's going to be things that we kind of broadly agree are of social importance. But then when we study those, we should be trying to do that as much as we can in a fair and even-handed way that leaves our kind of political preferences out of it. Uh, you all, I, I want to follow up a little bit. So you, you specified, and I think wisely, uh, this pertains to social science. I think this is especially an issue in social science. But what about in the hard sciences? What about in physics? Um, is Nagel's view more defensible there? So understanding just, you know, um, yeah, the laws of nature, laws of physics. Would, would, would we have different set of laws if uh, these set of laws were derived in Africa as opposed to, let's say, whatever, in England uh, or Western Europe? I mean, n no is my intuitive answer. I'm like not a philosopher of science and I like barely, you know, I've, I've read a little bit of this stuff, but I would not consider myself to be an expert at all. But no, I, I mean, I think if you're talking about like laws of physics or, or mathematical laws, those are, those are universal. And like, so I may be garbling this history terribly, but I think like calculus was invented independently in a number of places, um, some in the West, some in the East, right? And so what that says to me is like, hey, these things were out there waiting to be discovered. And it does, the cultural context is not really important in, in determining those. Yeah, I was just listening to um, a podcast with Sean Carroll and Liam Bright, and they, uh, they sort of had the same conclusion. They were talking about standpoint epistemology and I think Liam said there might be some brave soul that's willing to de defend the view that it depends on your perspective when describing physics. But um, I, I don't think that's a widely held view. I think is as far as psychology goes, though, it um, I think it depends on mental states. I was thinking about behaviorism, which sort of tries to describe humans' actions without describing mental states and or their perspectives and how that was a, a largely discarded view. Um because it just doesn't work. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, I think more or less. Uh, I mean, I, th I think, I think it's, I think the, the discarding of behaviorism is probably an overcorrection. Okay. So I think there's a lot of lot of uh, key insights into learning that that we that we derive from the behaviorist tradition, and I and I suspect we'll see it come back to some extent of aspects of it if we aren't already. Um, but yeah, I think your your view is yeah accurate. Cool. So. Um... Moving and then into a uh, more more particular question, I was I'm going to be mentioning a lot of podcasts. As as listeners can tell, I'm a podcast addict. Um, I was listening to an interview with uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and uh, she was describing her social construct theory of emotion, which, uh, if I understand it correctly, essentially says that uh, emotions are concepts which we attach to physical sensations. Uh, that are socially constructed in the sense that we give them names uh, with whatever language we're speaking, but that they aren't something that is objectively real. Um, and so that's uh, how they should be studied in that sense. Um, did I get that more or less right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, real is... Uh... <laughs> There's a tricky word in this context, That's right? True. But, right. So I, you know, uh, Feldman Barrett is arguing against this basic emotions view that says there's some number of emotions that are um, the product of natural selection that are in some degree inflexible in their um, expression and um, and antecedents. Uh, maybe inflexible isn't exactly right. A uh, universal cross-culturally, I think, is better. Mm -hmm. Um, and that these emotions are 
well, I mean, they're, they're not real in the way that a table or a chair is right, right. but they're sort of um, evolved response patterns that you find in, in humans, whether they're in the U S or in Europe or in Africa or Asia or whatever. Right. So those aren't cultural constructions, although there is a, you know, uh, I think basic emotions people would say that there is a lot of um, cultural input into how those emotions are felt and expressed and so on. But the kind of basics of the emotion, um, those are uh, universal across all humans. So she's arguing against that view. As I take right. it, you know, I'm like, I honestly haven't super closely followed this area, although I have mm -hmm. some like background in emotion research. Uh, but I think what they're saying is that there's. Um, that there's these two dimensions of valence and arousal um, and that people or cultures interpret different points on that valence arousal um, circumplex um, and give those different labels um, and categorize them in different kind of culturally arbitrary ways. And so hence the constructionism. And uh, you may get email from angry uh, constructivist theory of emotion people saying that I've mischaracterized okay. it, but that's, that's my understanding anyway. <laughs> I would be right now. I'd be happy to get any feedback, even if it's negative. Um, since I'm just starting this podcast, it would be interesting for me to read. Um, as long as they blame you, not me. Uh, uh, yeah. So I think, you know, when I first heard it, it uh, just resonated with me intuitively in a sense. Um, I'm pretty familiar with, I guess, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, one of the um, aspects of it is how you reframe uh, how you're how you relate to your emotions um, and, and even what label you give things. And so I think to some extent, it just intuited with uh, it resonated with me intuitively. But where I'm going with that is that um, I think a lot of times in political debates, uh, one's emotional reaction is very salient. And it can feel like we're arguing back and forth about something that's very deeply felt. Uh, and if I think it actually helps, I mean, even though I'm a conservative, so you might not think I would be super into social constructs, but I actually think it helps to can to recognize that there's some degree of subjectivity that um, a lot of what we're talking about is really labels that we attach to things that are not objectively real things. Um, to sort of, I don't know, have that mindset when we're talking about things that are very, very difficult um, because it might lead us towards a better sort of more enlightened view of the topic. Mickey, you're, uh, I'll yeah, let yeah, you go first. Yeah. This all resonates with me. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how the politics, you know, uh, mm -hmm. plays, plays in here. I don't, I don't see how, yeah, this is a, political topic at all. Um, it seems to me that uh, regardless of your political identity, uh, you might believe in, you know, basic emotions or you might not. Uh, it seems they seem orthogonal. Um, but I think that the, the, the maybe where you're going is this notion that just because I'm feeling a certain thing and, and maybe, the, maybe the basic kind of emotional building blocks might be, as you all mentioned, valence and arousal. So I'm, I'm feeling kind of negative and it's kind of intense. Um, and then you label that fear or anger. Mm -hmm. um, and that can then feed into how you respond to something you see on Twitter or some, mm -hmm. some, some newspaper article uh, you read. But of course that same you know, uh, emotional space 
could lead to, instead of it being anger, it could be fear, it could be sadness, it, it could be other things. Or, or also you can change your appraisal of what you've just read. And then by changing the appraisal and maybe being more charitable, all of a sudden you don't go to anger, you go to sympathy. Um, so I, I think that the utility of uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's approach, but also older approaches, you know, appraisal-based theories of emotion uh, suggest that, you know, what feels, you know, re super real to you is malleable and flexible and might not be, you know, uh, yeah, as solid as you, as you might think. So I think it's a valuable lesson uh, just in terms of how to live your life. Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, I mean, I agree with, with both of you that that's an important thing to realize um, that you're creating your reality in your head in a way. Um, but I don't think you need a constructivist theory of emotion for that, right? Because okay. even the discrete emotion theory, people would say, well, it's about the person's subjective appraisal of the world, right? Uh, so an example that I use in my intro social class is somebody bumps into you, like jostles you, and you might appraise that act as intentional, like the person's like pushing you out of their way and you might be angry, or you might appraise it as uh, unintentional, like they just didn't see you, um, in which case anger probably wouldn't be your response, right? And so it's the exact same physical things have happened, but your assessment of the situation is different, leading to a different emotional response, right? And, and uh, a discrete emotions, theorist would would sign on to that just as much as a constructivist would okay. now, we can go down a rabbit hole here you will <laughs> uh you know there was a, a a famous debate in the 1980s between lazarus and uh science right so, you know, the argument being uh do you need those appraisals for the emotion to be real what comes first the emotional experience um which could have be more than just you know a valence and arousal but could be fully fleshed anger and then the cognition comes later, um, but, but that's that will get us pretty deep, uh, and I could spend hours just talking. About yeah, that. yeah, that, that might be a little bit in the weeds. It's a, a fascinating debate, though, for like people who want to get into some like old school uh, psychology disputes, the Lazarus science debate in the early '80s. Okay, um, well, we can uh, let you guys hash that out another time. Um, yeah. So I was, I didn't make it clear at all, but, um, I was thinking of political discussions because I, I think a lot of times, um, uh, something, uh, the, the most, the most salient one that comes to mind is when, um, uh, usually a black man dies, uh, or is, um, brutalized by police, usually white like that. That is oftentimes the, I think the most, um, uh, something that can cause the most visceral emotional reaction. And so what that, um, it brings up a lot of emotions. It brings up a lot of emotions for me. I I'm sure it does for others and there can become this sort of in, intense debate online. And it's, it's, I don't know, maybe what I'm getting at is that the, the feeling about what is happening is so real uh that it um even even that sometimes describing what objectively happened um even though it's important in terms of a court of law is not really what's going on when we're having this political debate it's um it's like almost tertiary um and so i think i don't know like uh, we're we're having a um sort of conversation as a society about issues like this and it just um i mean it makes me 
uh, upset and frustrated for a variety of reasons. And I think it does everyone who, um, you know, wants to, to see progress. But um, I just, for some reason, the uh, talking about the way that our emotions work and relating to that um, seemed helpful to me. <laughs> I don't know if that helped at all. Um, I mean, I think the, I mean, the way I can relate to it, I mean, bringing it back to what we just were talking about and using your example of, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, let's say, for example, if we want to even, if you want to really anchor it to a specific event, mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, the, the, the killing of George Floyd in, in May in Minneapolis. Um, that led to a lot of rage uh, for a massive swath of the population. Um, uh, and maybe, again, going back, the question is, is rage the appropriate response there? It might be if your appraisal of, of the degree to which uh, Black men are killed at the hands of police, if you, if you praise that as being this is you know, a product of a racist society, then rage seems to be the response that wouldn't you, that, that would be generated. If, however, you have another perspective, which is that it sucks when uh, it's oh, sucks is, is, is putting it too lightly. It, it's a horrendous when police kill anybody. But if you look at the numbers, the numbers aren't as clear cut as you might imagine. Well, then the, then the emotion still might be raised, but it might not be as like, it might be more tempered. It might be more um, uh, measured. Uh, so then what is the appropriate response here? It, it, it depends completely on how you appraise the facts on the ground. Um, and again, so going back to kind of appraisal theories of emotion. Yeah, I mean, this is something where I think there there is a big political component to, to what you choose to emphasize, right? Because like you've already kind of hinted at, these emotional reactions to specific cases are, they don't care about numbers, right? It's that specific exemplar that like draws your outrage. And then whether it's, that's like one of 10 cases or one of a hundred cases or one of a thousand is actually less mm-hmm. important than the emotional impact of that one specific example. I mean, that's something that's like, I think just people agree on that. Psychologists agree on that, um, that our emotions are kind of enumerate in that way. Um, And, and so what often happens is that people who have, who are on, you know, one side ideologically focus on these specific cases and people who are on the other side, then try to provide the kind of numerical context. Right. So in the, in the, case of um, police shootings, you know, it might be conservatives who say, well, you know, the number of uh, black men, unarmed black men who are shot by the police is for a country that's as big as the US is pretty low, right? And we're talking about like 100, 200 people. Now, like any death is bad. And particularly when it's the police, it's bad. But if you put that in context um, of how many police civilian interactions there are, um, that's, that's a could be argued to be a low number, right? And exact flip side happens where, at least in some quarters on the right, um, if an undocumented immigrant commits some crime, that's widely publicized, right? Look at this terrible mm-hmm. thing that this person did, this specific exemplar. Um, and then liberals will say, well, actually, statistically, uh, immigrants commit crimes at a rate lower than the native born. Um, this is statistically unrepresentative. You have to look at the overall picture, right? So it's the exact yeah. mirror image. So I guess the point that I'm- That's a good example. Right? There, yeah. There's no, no side has the, um, uh, the monopoly on looking at things through an emotional lens or a dispassionate calculating lens. It just depends on mm-hmm. uh, w- like which narrative you're trying to promote or what your like ideological pre-existing commitment is. Yeah, this yep. totally reminds me, right, of Jonathan Haidt's argument about uh, was the, 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 the tail wagging the dog, 
right? So it's the, it's our moral intuitions that come first and, and then some sort of justification comes afterwards. Um, so what, what if, you know, if you're a conservative, maybe you're more concerned with law and order. If you're a progressive, you're more concerned with, you know, injustice or especially racial injustice mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the killing of George Floyd. Um, and that will then drive the, the emotions, the responses, the rationalizations that occur. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that's a good point. One other thing I was thinking occasionally um, I've noticed when just discussing with people online, I will like point out something that's factually in incorrect about an article or whatever. And they will come to say like, maybe they made some factual errors, but the important thing is that other people need to know that this is an issue. <laughs> um, and maybe even you admit that this is an issue, but other people don't. And so that's why this article is important, which is, I think they're arguing for their intuition about other people's intuitions about, you know, how much of a problem this is in society, which is just this, I don't know, it seems like an almost impossible conversation to have, especially online. Um, but it's, at the same time, it's a conversation we need to have. Um, it's one of the reasons I started this podcast is to talk about difficult issues like this, because there i mean uh, it feels like in some in some ways at least in america we're not even able to have this conversation anymore yeah i mean i think it's an interesting phenomenon that like the people who are like quibbling about facts and i don't mean that pejoratively right like let's say sure. like quibble is neutral right like you have a genuine attributional ambiguity as to why they're doing that right so if you're you're talking about like um i don't know the the michael brown shooting and where the accounts of you know, what actually happened there are pretty there's a lot of dispute there right and so if you're the person who comes mm -hmm. in and says hey actually this like hands up he had his hands up narrative is false like there's evidence to show that he was actually like running towards uh the police officer like he actually may have felt like his life was in danger like it might be that you're raising those points because you just really want to get it right in any situation or it might be because you're motivated to discount police violence uh towards right. people particularly minorities right and i as the perceiver i'm like well i'm not sure which it is and when I'm already like kind of ideologically primed, I think it's plausible that I'm like, oh, well, the only reason that you're raising those sorts of concerns is because you have an ideological ax to grind. And that's like, that's not, it's an overgeneralization. It's obviously not right in any specific case, but it's also not totally unfounded. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it, 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 you know, so what's interesting here is I, I see a, there can be a parallel, um, not just, you know, in the scientific world as well, where... So let's leave the, the, the realm of politics for a moment, mm -hmm. where a scholar is certain that, you know, a, a, one hypothesis is correct. And uh, they, they, they run the study, they don't find evidence that's consistent with their hypothesis. They run another study, they don't find evidence. They run three, four, and then finally they find some evidence and aha, here it is. This is the piece of evidence that is the correct one. Everything that came before it is incorrect. Um, and, and the reason I even bring this up is that it strikes me that, you know, sometimes we have these ideas, we have these ideas in our heads, whether it be moral intuitions, political intuitions, or scientific intuitions, and the data be damned, right? Th these intuitions are correct. So, uh, you know, I, I think at one point, you, well, you and I talked about this in our podcast, I think it was a, a bit that we, we ended up editing at some point. Um, where, you know, Daryl Bem uh, in a infamous article, you know, said, you know, the data were secondary, the data were just, were, were used rhetorically. 
right? So I, uh, I, I have a theory. I'm just using the data to prop up my theory, but they're not, the data aren't even needed. Okay. And it sounds like it's a very similar to the kinds of discussions you're having with, you know, people online mm-hmm. where they're convinced that their opinion is correct, be that the, 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 the progressive opinion or the conservative opinion. And then when you point out facts that are inconsistent with their opinion, they're like, yeah, but the, the facts are kind of irrelevant. It, it, the opinion is what matters, mm-hmm. but like, well, how do you have the opinion if, you know, well, then you that quickly unravels, right? Because the opinion should be based on fact. Um, uh, you know, your, your theory should be built upon a number of facts, but your, your facts don't hold up, then why do you have that opinion? Um, so yeah, these things, these things quickly dissolve. Yeah. That's one reason that I've significantly decreased the number of uh, conversations I have with strangers. <laughs> um, not that I don't have them occasionally, but, and I've also tried to be very careful because I realized that, you know, I realized that this is happening and they, you know, if they don't know me, they don't know what my motivations are. Um, to some extent, I, I, can say even i don't know what my motivations are i try to question my motivations um but i think we all um have to be aware of that um and you mentioned jonathan Hyde. i think his book the righteous mind um is is really good for doing that and seeing how uh, how difficult it actually is to do that um so next up uh, i wanted to talk about the implicit association test which is one of the things that i think can be used in uh, political debates sometimes um which roughly uh is a, a measure uh, an attempted measure of implicit associations between two concepts i think the most typical one is um comparing your uh, the, well it compares the speed at which you can associate um a white a uh, person's image with um, good concepts versus a black person's Im- image. Um, and then uh, the theory behind it is that it can sort of discover um, or measure implicit associations that you have between those two concepts. Um, and typically I think uh, white people and sometimes black people as well have more of an implicit association of positive concepts with, with white and negative with black. Um, so I guess my first question is, uh, and I realize that y- y'all are not um, the creators of this test, so it's, um, but probably are better able to say than I am for sure. Um, t- to what extent do we know that it's a valid and reliable measure of uh, something that's happening? Mickey, do you want to try and tackle this, or should I? <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> I can try. I was gonna. I was gonna do the exact same thing to you. Um, well, I think, I mean, I think as a basic description, uh, the most uh, well-known version of the, of the IAT, the implicit association test is this, uh, uh, black, white, evaluative, evaluative IAT. So exactly, you know, coupling together, uh, possibly let's say white and good concepts and, and black and, uh, and black and bad concepts. Um, uh, so to what extent is it valid? I mean, I think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive question in the field, um, I mean, so far as a measure of individual differences, it doesn't it doesn't appear to be valid, um, in the sense that it doesn't seem to predict, uh, you know, behaviors behavior. yeah. uh, in the real world. It doesn't seem to be even predict behavior in the lab, at least consistently. So that's you know that's one way of establishing validity, um, and you know a, a a presupposition of even having validity is for a tool to be reliable. That me- meaning that um, 
if I were to be assessed two separate times, me, Mickey, assessed, you know, time one, a week later, I do the exact same test. And then at time two, if I was to do that with my, you know, my, my scale, my, that I used to weight, uh, weigh my body, um, more or less, unless I've gained a, or lost a little bit of weight, it's going to be pretty consistent. Um, and you need that consistency to have a reliable tool. Uh, it turns out the IT doesn't have even like the basic, you know, uh, reliability, at least in this, I think in the evaluative black, white IT, it doesn't have okay. strong reliability. So that kind of kicks it, 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 uh, the, the, it, the possibility of it being valid right at its knees, right? It, it's, it's, it's just not possible. So there might be some small predictions between it and behavior when you have many, many thousands of people. Um, but at, at the level of the individual, it doesn't seem to be, it, it should not be used as a diagnosis. Uh, mm -hmm. But that would be uh, malpractice, I think. I think even the creators uh, now uh, admit that it should not be used at the level of the individual. Um, but, you know, I think the creators would argue that um, while it can't be used to diagnose, it's, 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 it's possibly good as, a, as a, an educational tool. Right. So you take the, you know, this IAT and you, it, it's something is revealed potentially about you. But again, you know, even me just saying that, I'm like, well, if you can't diagnose any one person, then why should you look at your score as being meaningful to you? Other than to maybe realize, hey, I have these associations. But even then, we don't know what those, we don't know what those numbers mean. Um, so it's tough to argue that it's an educational tool that should be used as an educational tool. And funnily enough, this kind of relates to what I said earlier, which is sometimes we have these ideas of concepts and the data be damned. Um, here's a case where we have this kind of rough pattern where overall white people tend to show a more positive association with white and positive concepts mm -hmm. and even black people, some, uh, some percentage of black people show this as well. Um, but, and that could then maybe say something about the general population, but like, but your data don't necessarily bear that out. Data be damned. We still have this concept of implicit cognition. It's really important. Uh, the idea is important. Who cares about like whether whether it's a valid tool or reliable tool? Um, I'm not yeah, sure that's so unfair. What do you think, Uel? I well, I, I mean, I, I think your take is is basically right. Um, so where there's controversy is about the extent to which the IT predicts behavior at an aggregate level. So you, you give a bunch of people this test and then you measure their behavior um, above and beyond uh, an explicit measure. So like you just give them a questionnaire that says, how do you feel about these groups, right? And I think, so my take, and again, I haven't followed it th that closely, but my take is that uh, there is a, a small on the aggregate level predictive utility to the IIT. So like if you know on average the IIT score, you're going to be able to say on average, they're going to be a little bit more this way when they're interacting uh, with, a, with a group member. But that, that's not a big effect, right? And it's kind of debatable whether above and beyond an explicit measure, which is obviously easier, just ask people, how do you feel about this group? Uh, whether you have any um, predictive power there at all. Uh, and I think that the uncontroversial thing is that on an individual level, it just can't be used to diagnose because it's too noisy, which is just another way of saying um, reliability is low, right? There's a lot of error in those in those numbers. Um, so if I take it uh, one day, it might say like, I strongly prefer uh, white people over black people. Another day, it might say mild preference. On another day, it might even say I have a mild preference for black people over white people, right? Those numbers just move around a lot. Um, and they, as the IT creators now say, no, it shouldn't be used for diagnosis. But as far as I know, they do still have the Project Implicit website that does give people specific feedback about you know, where they fall. 
And I think they justify that by saying, well, it's an educational tool. It raises awareness. That's good. They don't have data for that. And I would argue actually strongly the contrary. Like this is based on anecdotes, but I have heard from people like, for example, somebody Mickey and I both know uh, who works at U of T, a lovely person um, happens to be non-white said that uh, they took this test and it showed that they were biased against black people compared to white people. Um, that that is, they had relatively more favorable associations with white people. And it really shook them. You could tell, like they were emotional about it. And I think it really fucked with this person to be told this. And it was probably, it was nonsense. It was, yeah. you know, not even false, right? It's just like, you can't do that based on the data. Who knows how many of that kind of person there are out there. And we shouldn't be so cavalier in assuming that the effects are going to be positive. Like some people are really going to take this stuff seriously and it may really bother them. And we're, it's not right to tell them that like the data for that, like they don't support that statement. And I, I think honestly that they ought to be a lot more cautious about the kinds of feedback that they're giving people and they ought not to assume that the net effect of giving people um, feedback that can't be justified by the data is going to be positive, because I don't see any reason for assuming that that's the case. Uh, so, well, I mean, I, I think I, I, I mostly agree with what you just said, but let me just push back a little bit. Um, couldn't the creators of the IIT say that this emotional response that you just, just described, where someone is horrified at their score, um, that's... You know, it's a negative emotion at the moment, but ultimately that might lead them to then reflect, uh, to learn how they might actually be more, more biased than they imagine. And, uh, and then to kind of redouble their efforts uh, to be uh, you know, egalitarian. Wouldn't that be a net positive? Uh, I think that's awfully speculative. Just imagine writing an ethics application uh, just for your listeners who aren't psychologists, this is something that we have to do when we want to run a, you know, uh, academic study. And in this ethics application, I'm going to say, I'm going to flip a coin. If it comes up heads, I'm going to tell people they're racist. I'm never going to debrief them. I'm just going to let them walk out believing they're racist. You think I would get that approved? Uh, no, but I mean, doesn't it? Okay, we admit that, it, that the IT cannot be used uh, at the level of the individual. And, and this is maybe just me not understanding how that it scales up to the aggregate. Isn't the assumption there, you well, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure I'm, I'm wrong here, um, that it is being measured at the level of the individual just really, really noisily, right? So there's yes. some true signals being, being in there. Um, and it's just, it's just being, uh, you know, it's a lot more noise as well. But on, on mass, like if I give the advice, you know, you're mildly racist or you're very racist or what have you, uh, or you're egalitarian, on mass, I'm more or less correct. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there has to be some signal at the individual level or else when you aggregate up, you, you wouldn't get anything. Right. Um, but let's say, you know, for I, I don't know what the exact numbers are given the lack of reliability in the test. Right. But let, like, let's say, you know, it's, it's um, slightly more likely to be right than not. If we just dichotomize and say, which way does their preference go, right? So there's like a 55% chance it's right. So there's a 45% chance that we're incorrectly telling people that they have racial bias. Like, I, I honestly think that's unacceptable. Um, and I, I think my perspective is, you know, we shouldn't do harm to people. And you can't get yourself out of that by like kind of hand waving about, oh, maybe downstream social benefits, it makes them better people. You don't know that, right? right? What you do know is that you're giving people 
feedback about something that they may take really seriously and you're doing that based on bad evidence. And that's so aren't we doing this experiment right now in real in the in, in the real world where aren't we telling everybody they're racist? You know, it, it, we, we live in a in a uh, what is it a white supremacy and um, whether you know it or not, you're racist. And uh, I mean that experiment is being conducted. Yeah, and and I would say <laughs> I would say so far it's not going great. Just my subjective take. <laughs> Dude, you're looking at the data. Don't look at the data. We know it's working out. The data are, are just right. a problem. This, this must be the right way to do things. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, <clears throat> really appreciate the work that Chloe Valdery does. I think that um, her take on anti-racist training, emphasizing like social emotional learning and um, treating people as human beings first and foremost, I, I think... Um, I mean, she, she's not a scientist, right? So um, she's just a, a founder of a business, but like intuitively that approach to diversity training and reducing racism, I think makes a lot more sense. I think if, uh, it, I mean, I, at, at the same time, I think, I think it's fine for scientists to like study things like implicit, implicit association. Um, and I think it's maybe important in, in a, uh, at a societal level to to think about these things but in terms of like how i would go about um improving like in terms of what actions to take i think you know the the approach that um that chloe has makes makes a lot more sense to me yeah i think one uh one thing that goes i think mostly unnoticed is and you all you all and I we've discussed this I think a bunch over over the years, um, is that we I think we have this assumption that when we intervene, the uh, the, the results of our intervention are either going to be positive, that is helpful for whatever agenda we might have, um, or it's going to be neutral at worst, hmm. but we often don't consider that it could have negative effects. And I actually have one paper, one paper only on this topic. And, and, and this result that I'm about to describe was a surprise to us at the time. We did replicate it, but uh, I, I think it, it, it should be replicated by independent people uh, before we you know, I, I talk too much about it. But we actually found ironic effects of you know, anti-prejudice messages, such that um, when a uh, kind of a message of uh, anti-racism um, was framed uh, in a certain way, it actually led to uh, you know, um, an increase in prejudice among some of our participants. Mm -hmm. So, and we found this, you know, again, in a couple of studies that we, and we didn't expect to find this. So uh, that can happen too. So, you know, you, if you're forced by your, by your company to do some HR training um, that includes uh, a diversity initiative, you know, it's not only, it's possible that you're not only not, you're not improving things. You might be making things worse. You might actually be building up resentment. Um, and for people who are more or less neutral, more or less maybe egalitarian is to be like, screw you. You're telling me I'm a racist no matter what I do. Um, like I'm, I'm no longer, I, I, I want no part of your agenda. That can happen too. Um, and I think that's, a, a, I think a possibility we need to grapple with a little bit more seriously in our society. Yeah, nobody seems to care whether these interventions really do what they're supposed to, right? So how many companies are rolling out uh, these anti-racism trainings and how many of them are actually trying to see whether they do what they're supposed to do? And without those data, yeah, how do we know? 
how do we know it's not actually counterproductive, right? There's there's really no way to, and, and this is why it's so important to, to get data and to care about whether things actually do what they're claimed to do rather than just like, what is their kind of moral signaling value? Okay, so I'd like to move on to um, a topic of uh, ideological diversity in in the sciences. And I think um, y'all had a podcast episode a, a while back talking um, about the benefits of, I guess, sp specifically hiring more conservatives if a department was lacking in that. Um, and you sort of weighing the pros and cons relative to other considerations. But um, I guess my take on it that I would offer is that it's, it might, I don't know, it's, it, it seems like it might be counterproductive to, um, like if I were applying to um, a psychology department, the, like I, I wouldn't want to be thought of as like, oh, you're the uh, conservative person here because like, I, I don't know. It doesn't uh, seem to me to be something that you would necessarily want to explicitly hire for. I don't think you should necessarily discriminate based on uh, political beliefs, um, depending on how you define those political beliefs. Um, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't know anybody uh, who's explicitly advocating for this kind of like affirmative action. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to set aside this line uh, for somebody right of center. Um, my personal take is like, I, um, I'm not going to select on politics. So, I, I mean, you can come up with these extreme hypotheticals where it's like the person's a QAnon believer or right. they're like a fascist or say, it's like, right. okay, those people aren't applying to our jobs. So like, let's keep it realistic where we're going to go like the, you know, the craziest would be like libertarian or something. And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. within that spectrum, I don't care. Like, I don't care about selecting on ideology um, and I, I just don't think it should be a consideration. Yeah, so, I agree. I, 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 sorry, go, go ahead. I don't know. I, I was just going to say, maybe I should have uh, introduced the topic differently, but I guess what would, would you say though, that, I mean, to the extent that political preferences are a reflection of temperament or personality, um, going back to what we mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, that ideological diversity is a good thing because of the complexity of the social science investigations that we're making. Um, and so it is, it is a good, but you wouldn't, it is a good thing to hire a diverse um, group of people ideologically, but it's not necessarily something that you want to select for is, am I getting that right? Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I think this like, people have talked about viewpoint diversity. Um, part of the reason that's given for demographic diversity is different people bring different perspectives to the table based on their background, which I think is totally true um, and a valid point. I think in the same way, you know, like uh, when you come from a certain place ideologically, um, that brings with it certain assumptions and ways of seeing the world and blind spots. And if you have more of a mix of uh, uh, ideologies, then uh, you notice some of those blind spots more, um, you notice some of your assumptions more, and that's good um, for for reasoning. Like you're smarter that way. Yeah. So I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, I, but you know, I agree. I think in, in, with everything that's been said, uh, including what you else said, which is, I'm not sure we need to uh, select on political diversity. Mm -hmm. I think I think the, the the 
for me, the diversity of most interest is, you know, I know it's a bad word in certain circles, but it's, but it is viewpoint diversity. And that could come that correlates with, with political ideology. Okay. It also correlates with, you know, uh, you know, your race or ethnicity. It also correlates with all different kinds of worldviews. It correlates with your religious orientation, with your socioeconomic status. So I think we want to select uh, people who have, who bring all different kinds of experiences, all different kinds of worldviews to the table. And then I think we'll be better able to, to you know, uh, establish better facts on the ground. I think if we select people who all share the same ideas, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll share the same blind spots as well. So one way of doing this is, of course, selecting on different political uh, ideologies. But I think mm -hmm. that's just one dimension of many that we could be selecting on. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I think it's overly simplistic to say like, this is just like this left, right continuum and sure, we need to sure. like, right. It, to me, it's really like the typical progressive academic is just on a number of dimensions, such a, I don't know, specific and unrepresentative type of person. Um, more affluent, more likely to have gone to elite institutions, to have highly educated parents, to be white, actually. Um, like, uh, those people are whiter than the general U.S. population. And it's like, do we really want to restrict our set of, like, acceptable candidates to this very narrow slice of the U.S. culturally and demographically? Like, I would say no. And I, I think that, like, you even see this with um, people who are maybe first-gen college, uh, people who are members of some minority groups, they don't necessarily talk or think about things in the same way that like elite white liberals do. It's, it's just a very like, almost like a kind of exotic species, right? And it, we're so surrounded by them, we think it's normal and it's not. Go talk to a regular person. They don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And, and that, can, that cannot be made more clear by... Uh, looking at application materials of different uh, people who apply for jobs. And it's sometimes the, the people who you think uh, should be the most egalitarian, most progressive are not. Um, so I think we make a lot of assumptions about, uh, you know, about who will have these views. Um, and I think ultimately we want people to come to the table with different views and different experiences. Um, but, but, and again, there are so many dimensions upon which there can be diversity. Uh, and I think focusing exclusively on one, whether it be political or race, ethnic, it means we're not, we're not considering diversity in other spheres as well. And I think for science, really, the, the, the proximal diversity is, uh, the proximal variable for diversity, to me at least, is, is diversity of viewpoints or mm. uh, worldviews or, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah. Yeah. It, so Mickey, a minute ago, you said like egalitarian and progressive, and I know what you're getting at, but I want to protest and see it's not even that, right? Those are broad values. What I'm talking about is a very specific like set of terms and ways of expressing yourself and kind of like rules that like when you know them, they become invisible to you, but they're actually totally arcane. And how do you learn them is you're socialized in these elite institutions, right? People forget that stuff. Like they don't notice it because it kind of blends into the background for them. Right. I, I feel personally I've rubbed against that. Uh, not, you know, I think now I've been seeped in this culture long enough, but in, in my past, yeah, I haven't had that same cultural knowledge of, of this space as some other people. 
Okay, so um, I want to reference something you said in, I think, your most recent podcast episode um, and mentioned it once before maybe, which is the extent to which um, academia can be exploitative. Um, And I think it's interesting at a broad level, we're seeing decreasing trust in institutions. And the, in my personal experience, software engineering, like I can tell you about a lot of problems in software engineering, I think. Um, and there are a lot of problems in academia and there are, um, I've also been a government employee and like the federal government seems like a mess. Um, and so it's just like, geez, um, you know, uh, there are institutions, maybe especially the ones that are founded roughly between or at least became what they are started to become what they are between the 50s and 70s like have shown shown some signs of um broad there's signs of broad dissatisfaction with them and um i guess well i'm trying to figure out how we get out of this mess and um (laughs) obviously it's a um ongoing evolutionary process but i think one thing that seems right to me to prefer um is just transparency. Um, and that can be difficult as we discussed, these issues become emotionally salient to you, your, your own, whether it's your own research or whether you're, it's your own project that you're running, like you naturally want to protect what you feel is yours, but at the same time, it might not be valuable to society as a whole. It might not be accurate science. And so I guess just building up instu- an, an intuition for the value of transparency and also creating systems that are transparent um i think is i I don't know it's a it's a broad noble goal but i think it's it's one maybe one place to start um what do you think i mean it uh it strikes me as a uh as a good place to start and of course Mm -hmm. in science transparency has been a kind of a uh, something that we've been, you know, banging the drum on for 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 a decade now that we, it needs to be increased, whether it be the the process of reviewing papers or the process of hiring a, a new faculty member, um, or you know, showing all your data that that kind of thing. I I suspect that would also increase trust in other institutions as well. If you can see the inner workings of a a government organization, including the warts, um, mm-hmm. I think that's the key. And this goes back to my, what I was saying earlier about mistakes. Um, I, you know, it says, you know, for Trump, for example, is, is, is the, the perfect ex- counterexample to someone, you know, admitting mistakes, right? He right. will never apologize, will never ad- admit to doing anything wrong. And I think that that is really bad for, 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 for trust. And I think that's, you know, I, and again, it, it, he's a kind of like a caricature of what, what would the, this would be like to, to the extreme, right. but perhaps it's still too much obfuscation and too much like covering up and too much trying to be like, you know, I didn't really do this thing that I actually did. And I think we maybe kind of had more of our warts uh, on the, uh, you know, out there in, and including paying the consequences for those warts. Mm-hmm. That, that's fine. I think for the system, at least. Uh, yeah, I think that that'd be a, a nice place to start. I'm not sure that will solve it all, but it, it's a good place to start. Yeah, so like I'm I'm for transparency for its own sake. Um, is it going to solve problems of declining trust in institutions? Uh, I'm more skeptical about that. Sure. I think if you're like look at the era in U.S. history where you know trust in institutions was historically high, was that particularly transparent? Oh, no. Not really, right? Like if anything, the opposite, right? We know right. more now, um, and it's just made us more distrustful. So I, I think that's 
something else. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess we could get into what that something else is, but I don't think it's transparency or lack of it. Yeah, I guess maybe what I was thinking is we we have more transparency now, and that's causing people to reflexively defend their institutions. Um, but I think uh, if uh, if we can build the institutional the value, if um, if we can help um, each other understand how transparency is is a good thing ultimately, even though it's painful, like it's painful to be wrong. It's painful to have warts exposed. Um, and so I, I guess what I was getting at, even though I didn't articulate it clearly is that like this, we have more transparency. Now we have uh, the internet. Um, everyone has cell phones that they can record things like we have it. It's showing us, we have a lot of problems that we didn't even realize we had before, but that ultimately building, building up, I guess, emotional psychological resiliency to um understand its value is is a good thing is what i was trying to get at yeah i i'll definitely agree with that yeah likewise um it's certainly a good thing but i i I suspect you while you were you were suggesting that um the deeper forces at play. And I, I, by forces, I don't mean nefarious dark forces out there, mm-hmm. the, the globalists. You um, mean the Jews, Mickey. Let's just <laughs> I mean the Jews, exactly. <laughs> but I think you mean, you know, probably just, you know, uh, is it tribalism or sectarianism, uh, you know, th- that's getting in the way. Is that where you're, where you're thinking, Yoel, is kind of at the heart of it or? Um, well, I mean, I, I know the U.S. best, right? Um, and I think... <sighs> I'm kind of a materialist about this stuff. I think uh, people felt their prospects were better. Um, and that was like part of the post-World War II, like global economic conditions, like where the U.S. was relative to um, the rest of the world, um, the manufacturing that it, we were still doing um, then in, in the U.S. that's now moved elsewhere. Um, made for like a really solid base of employment for like a broad middle class. Um, and, and that's sort of gone away due to these kind of global economic factors that are like beyond the reach really of like any one country's policy regime. That's part one. And then, and then part two, I think you have to say like it was a more homogenous country, right? Um, right. Culturally, ethnically, and so on. Uh, and, and that, that, you know, we know social science research shows that generally that's associated with higher trust in institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to uh, get to my closing question now, which um, and each of you can answer this individually. Can you tell me about a time that you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point? So, so I'll, I'll go first. Um, the, I, I won't give the whole backstory because it'll just be boring. But basically, uh, some collaborators and I wrote a paper. Another research group wrote a paper saying we were wrong. Now, they wrote that response, in my opinion, in kind of like a dickish, snarky way that it was unnecessary. And we likewise responded in kind of an aggressive way. But like looking back on it, um, I don't think that they were completely right. But I think they were right to point out some things that we mm-hmm. had um, underemphasized in our in our paper because of our kind of theoretical perspective and where we were coming from that are important and true. Um, so in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, I appreciate that that critique, um, and I I find it more convincing now than than maybe I did when I was writing the response to them. It's kind of funny that you well, that you answered. Uh, you give an academic answer. By that I mean you you gave an example from your from your day job, 
Um, I think I can more readily find examples of when I was wrong and, and, and admitted in the end I was wrong with my academic work. I mean, I, I think I've, you know, I, the big body of my work, I no longer trust. Uh, and that was, I think, uh, shown to be wrong by uh, critics is maybe not the correct word, but, you know, more investigation, including critical critical investigation. And I've kind of abandoned, abandoned entire areas of research. Um, I was trying to think, though, uh, to answer your question more about the podcast, if we said something or did something where um, a critic pushed back and we, in the end, changed our mind. Or just said um, you might have a point. Like, <laughs> it, I guess what I'm looking for is like it updated your worldview in some small way. I don't know. Right. Um, I think it's harder with the podcast. I mean, so one that comes to mind is somebody, it's a stupid example. So, uh, you know, in the early days, we did, uh, we did an episode on the intellectual dark web, the IDW, and I said a couple things about Dave Rubin. I actually said positive things about Dave, Dave Rubin and a listener, Chris Ferguson. Um, sorry, Chris, Chris Kavanaugh. Sorry, Chris. Um, I confused Chris is there. Uh, kind of uh, pushed back saying, you know, that guy's Essentially, saying these guys an idiot, which is true, I think. Um, and I kind of look back and re-examine my beliefs. I'm like, you know what? I agree. This guy is the moron. <laughs> but that he's, he's, that's too easy because he's such a punching bag now. Um, of things we said in the actual podcast. Do you have any examples you want from the podcast itself? From the podcast itself, I don't know. No. I don't know. Yeah, I just thought of one more from life because you're right that the research thing is kind of easy. Well, I don't know this I think, necessarily. I think it easy. might actually show. Um, the the extent to which you're more willing to update your beliefs if you have a deep level of knowledge and someone else also has a deep level of knowledge. Because I think our political beliefs, are so, unless you study policy or politics, they tend to be sort of just ingrained. Whereas like if you, if you have a lot of data about something and someone else points out something, then I don't know, it might be, might be easier to change your mind on that. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so I, I thought of one while, while Mickey was giving his, okay. um, so I voted for Sanders in the primary and I, you know, I'm registered in California and it was sort of a symbolic gesture at that point. Um, but I did think that he would have been able to win. I was like, he's for things that are popular. Um, people generally like, uh, a, an expansive welfare state. Um, I, I think that at least they like it when when they see the benefits coming to them um mm -hmm. and uh and i was like you know these these things he's for are popular he's got this like anti-elite thing going on that like seems very of the moment he can be trump and now man uh if we had nominated sanders i think he would have lost like i didn't i didn't know how toxic the socialist label was and that's like mm -hmm. a kind of product of my own like intellectual bubble of being around people for whom it means Sweden. But then there's people right. who came from Cambodia and to them, it means like death camps. And so they're, they're not into it. Right. Um, and I think it would have been disastrous to nominate him. And I'm really glad uh, that we nominated the boring old centrist dude. All right. Well, we will end it there. Uh, Mickey Enslick, Daniel and bar. Thank you for coming on. You might have a point. Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, this was a great time. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Stephen. It was uh, lots of fun. Cool. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, whether it's positive or negative, I'd be glad to hear it. You can find out how to reach me in the show notes. Thanks for listening and take care.